Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. So today. Our guest is entrepreneur, hotelier, designer, and preservationist, and if I may actually add, writer, Chris Barkley. To unpack a few of these titles, we need to go all the way back to 1994, when Chris launched a training company focused on leadership development, based out of Guangzhou. But we'll get to that. Then one thing led to another, and in 2001, Chris opened the Yangshuo Mountain Retreat. Now. That is very, very early for opening an eco lodge in China, and he opened this in the Guilin area. Most travelers would know. And in two thousand seven, he launched a second boutique in Guilin area, also the Yangshuo Village Inn. And in two thousand twelve, Chris and his wife set their sights to Yunnan, where they restored the Shaxi Pear Orchard Temple and the Old Theater Inn. Which now serves as both a boutique hotel and an active place of worship. Now that's very interesting. We will get to that. I just love hearing these stories of early entries into the sustainable tourism field. That actually, I believe,、um, is now a buzzword. But when Chris first started, this word probably didn't quite exist. Sustainable tourism. And I know Chris has lots of interesting stories to accompany his path to today. So, without further delay, Chris, let's dive in. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, it's a real honor to be on your podcast. Let's start with a place both you and I know very well, Shaxi. Right. So I had visited Yunnan many times, as you mentioned. I had a training company, so clients really love Yunnan. So they would always say, "Let's go do this event somewhere in Yunnan," and then that's how I really came to know it in the '90s. And after that, I really just kind of felt like I could see the tourism developing there, but I never really thought of doing anything commercially there. And my wife and I had been trying to conceive a child. And this was after our only child, a daughter, had died, and we were quite late in life at that point. And particularly when you're that age, so both my wife and I are well. We're now in our mid fifties, so that was ten years ago. So we're in our mid forties. Not an easy time to start to <laughs> think about having a child. So it was really not working for us. And I said, why don't we just take a break? I know this beautiful place. A friend of mine had been urging me to go for. Years and I was always too busy. So now I said, "Why don't we just go there? It's a very relaxing place." This was the Dali area. I didn't really know Shashi, but my friend Chris, another Chris, had been telling me about it. So I said, "Why don't we just go there and take a break?" And we did. And I really didn't know much about Shashi. I I tend to go into things without doing you know a lot of research or anything. I just want to go and experience it firsthand. And we came upon this. Temple that was—I don't want to say derelict, but it was in poor condition—and there was a shrine to the Songzhe Guanyin, which is the goddess of mercy who gives children.、Mm. And my wife recognized 
this image. And I, I knew something of it, but I'm not a Buddhist. My wife is Thai. She's a devout Buddhist. And so she prayed at the temple. There were some local people there. We burned some incense and um, didn't think too much about it. And we love Shashi because it was quiet. It's different than a lot of tourist centers in Yunnan. There's just not that many people. <laughs> it's all local people and uh, occasional visitors. And then maybe because at the time there wasn't that many places to stay. So we came back to Chiang Mai and my wife was pregnant. So we thought that we should do something for the temple in Shashi. Um, in Chinese, you say Huan Yuan. You give something back if the temple answers your prayers. So I went back to Shashi, you know, after our daughter was born. This was 2012. And I talked to the local village government and I said, is there something we can do? You know, maybe donation. And they said, well, actually, you know, we'd like it if you just helped us to fix the temple. I said, okay. And I didn't really realize how big a job this was. <laughs> It was huge. <laughs> and I'm not an architect. You know, I have building experience, but I'm like, I'm not. So, and all of this is traditional building. So it's really complex. It's done without nails. All the joinery and everything is very special for by people, the way they build, particularly places of worship. It's a very specific kind of design. And you also, I'm sure, know that Shashi architects are considered some of the best in China in terms of traditional building. So we were really lucky that we had those builders to help us rebuild it. And it took over two years. So I learned a lot about that. And during the process, I was staying at a small inn across the valley. And that was called Dragonfly. And it was run by a local family. And I got talking to them. And they knew that I was doing a boutique hotel business in Yangshuo. So they said, you know, why don't you help us run this place? I said, I'm already way over my head on this temple thing. So I don't really want anything more to do here. But I couldn't <laughs> resist because, you know, Shashi casts a spell on you. It's really like a time capsule. It's, it's an incredible place. There's a great energy there. And I can't quite describe it. It's a beautiful climate. Things grow year round. It's self-sufficient. People are super welcoming. And so I was like, yeah, why not? Okay, I'll start a new project, you know, restoring this. It wasn't just a guest house, Dame. It was like a 250-year-old temple complex with guest rooms. So that mm -hmm. was like another complication, you know, working with the government because, as you said, it's an active place of worship like the Pear Orchard Temple. And how do you accommodate guests while you know, being open to ceremonies and rituals that are very important to local people. And there's a, a shrine on site that we have to maintain and sweep. And so that was my introduction to Shashi. It's like baptism by blowtorch. You go into a place and you're immediately <laughs> overwhelmed by all the, all that life can, can give you. So yeah. And it's been going now 10 years. I love the story. In fact, when I first read that, you chanced upon it in a way. I wasn't surprised at all. Among all places, Shashi is just so particular. And uh, for, for our listeners, uh, I'll sort of zoom out a little bit. Shashi is this tiny little village. Well, it's an area, but we mostly refer to Sedong village and a couple of other villages in this Heihui River Valley, right? 
And I would say most people know Yunnan province. They know Dali and Lijiang, two tourist towns, one to the south, one to the north. Shaxi is somewhere in the middle. And it was a very important, as you know, Chris, right, this very important depot, in a way, along the ancient Tea Horse Trail, which has always held my sort of fascination. Um, so for the past thousand years, the horse caravans would come there and it was a place where they would just offload everything from the horse and stay in little lodges. And there's a stage where local operas would be performed and it, it sort of became a local cultural exchange hub, right? So under sort of noticed for decades and decades in Chinese tourism. And the first time I went there, Chris, was 2002, 2003, okay. somewhere around there. The ancient Guxitai, the stage was still under renovation. Okay. Just such a beautiful place. And I spoke with um, the conservation team there. Yes, Jack Feiner. Jack Feiner. Yeah. And also Huang Yingwu. Uh, his Chinese counterpart. Yeah, right. both they were there at the very, very beginning. For anybody who's remotely interested in sort of traditional Chinese architecture and the Bai architecture and religion, local unspoiled sort of village scene, prime place to be. So I'm not surprised. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And just a footnote, like that work in Shashi by the Swiss government won a UNESCO Heritage Award. It was a big deal. And they restored that old town beautifully in a way that's, I think, really authentic and appropriate for that place without trying to make it into something new or Disney-esque. I mean, it, it's kind of sleepy and beautiful the way it was. Yeah, exactly. I also worked with the uh, World Monument Fund, WMF. Mm -hmm. Right. organization that funded a lot of that work. And I remember back then, one of the key conversations on conservation of a cultural heritage site was keeping old, old. And if you have to strip away part of it that's rotten, you just replace that bit. But you have a contrast of old and new, not right. sort of painting bright colors all over everything, making everything look brand new. Um, right. That was a difference in their cultural conservation philosophy. Did you encounter any of that when you were doing your conservation work? What were the major challenges there? First of all, I'd never done this kind of work before. So I was really at the, I guess, the local government and the local architects and builders. I had to listen to them. And I wasn't convinced that they were really on the same page in terms of conservation. What they wanted was to make something new, you know, something that they could show off, something shiny and modern a lot of times, you know. So I'm not saying that that's a wrong approach, but I didn't know enough myself. So I got in touch with UNESCO in Bangkok. They look after Southeast Asia and they gave me a lot of advice. And so I read through a lot of their, you know, heritage preservation process and learned a lot about that as we went, but it was really on the fly. So I didn't really have a standard or a strategy for it. I just wanted to restore as much as possible what was already there without adding too much to it. But things like lighting, like there was no lighting in the temple. So should we put in lighting? 
there were no toilets. So we have to do that. And then what kind of toilet? And we want to make it open to the public. So yeah. And then the government said, you know, we should really make this into a visitor center. And I said, okay, that's a whole other thing now. I mean, now we need parking. They're like, no problem. We can do that. I was like, is that really something we want? And they're like, absolutely we do. We want more people coming here. I said, yes. And parking should be like, not here. You should get on a shuttle or something. You don't want to let. So we had a long discussion about all these things and it worked out really well. We ended up putting in a lot more than we originally anticipated. And I think I'm happy with that because it's a legacy. The local people are happy. We kept our promises. And I think it's really for the betterment of Shashi and particularly the people of that village. So tell us, how did the local villagers embrace this project? How are they using it now in terms of religious ceremonies? So that temple has quite a bit of history. It was the first temple in Shashi. It's Dento, the name of that village, is the sort of the northern point of the valley of Shashi. And Shashi is something really interesting, Jame. When we were doing renovation, we came upon carvings, like tablets that were inscribed. And I put a copy of them on the website on the Ginkgo Society, which we use as kind of an archive for the renovation process. And on these tablets, it told the story of migration of these people from like Henan to this part of Yunnan. Back in the Tang Dynasty, there was floods. It was quite an epic uh, story. And it turns out, you know, people migrated here and Shashi was underwater. I mean, the whole valley was flooded because of some earthquake that happened on the Yangtze River. Anyway, as the water receded, that was the high point in the valley. So that's where people settled first and they built this temple, which burned down, earthquake destroyed it, they rebuilt it, it burned again, they moved it. So what we have now is like, there's probably very little left from that original temple, but we found very interesting foundation stones as we dug. We had to excavate everything because we're dealing with mud brick, which there's no way to repair it. You kind of have to dig it up and rebuild it. We had to make our own mud brick. Anyway, it was involved. So the question was, how did the local people embrace it? And in the beginning, they really were not too happy about it. When I spoke with the village elders, they were like, why do you want to do this again? And I said, well, I'm just, you know, kind of paying back karmic debt here. So they said, well, we like it the way it is. I said, it's falling down. And they're like, yeah, that's the natural state of things like entropy. I said, well, yes. uh, And I'm happy to build it back up. I understand their hesitation because they must have been thinking I had some kind of agenda or some kind of angle. Because if some random Chinese guy showed up in a small village in America and said, I want to rebuild your church, everyone be like extremely suspicious. Like, is this going to be a karaoke? (laughs) What are you up to? This is weird. (laughs) So I got past that pretty quickly with them. I think they could tell that, you know, our hearts were in the right place and that we weren't really looking to convert this temple or try to make it into something it wasn't. So this temple, because it's so old, it is really the cradle of this Ajali Buddhism in Shashi. Ajali is a kind of a tantric Buddhism that came from Tibet. It's really not found anywhere else in China anymore. And so the ceremonies that go on at this temple are quite important for continuity of that branch of Buddhism. So the local people really care a lot about that. They really care about that continuity. Mm -hmm. It appears to be kind of matriarchal, this sect. And so I see mostly women and and their daughters 
doing all the ceremonial work, there's always a man who is kind of like a, he's a lay priest, but he's the only one, like everyone else is, it's local women. And very noticeably so, yeah. Power to unite women. Exactly, yeah. So what did you do to gain their trust? I listened, a lot of listening, um, a lot of checking in, like inviting people to come and look at what we were doing. I mean, people would just come in while we were working on it and they wanted to burn incense or do whatever. So we had to keep the shrines open as much as possible while we were working. First of all, Shashi is very small. It's like 16 villages. I don't know the exact population now because there's so many migrants there who are running businesses, but there can't be more than like a couple thousand people there, like native Shashi people. And they all know each other. Like (laughs) most of them have the same last name. So they all know what's up very quickly. They go to Friday market, they gossip, they know what's going on. And, um, (laughs) And they knew everybody on my team, on my building team. And they all knew that those were trustworthy people who were good at what they did. And, and so being associated with them was a real benefit because I was kind of now in that circle of trust and they felt like, well, if Mr. Yang is in charge, then it'll go okay. It's, it's fascinating. I'm just amazed by your, the diversity. You're a true entrepreneur in heart that you see a project you want to go about it and you find ways to make it happen. Um, that's fascinating. I, I want to dig a little bit sort of back in your history. Yeah. How did you become that way in a way? To, to get to Guangzhou in 1994 was way early. And to have a training company and then later on to become a hotelier in Guilin. Right. So I, I had been in China since the late 80s, actually. So... I didn't just fall off the radish truck. <laughs> I'd been in university in, in 1988 in Beijing and I'd worked in Beijing. I worked for the embassy for a while. So I had experience in China and language capabilities to start. And then how did I get that way? I mean, this is not for everybody. It's really not for anybody. I mean, China, you know, right? Having been in the States and then you go back and you're like, wow, this is, everything's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. So going to start this company. Okay. First of all, I am unemployable. That's the first thing you should know about me. Like I, I don't, I don't work well with big organizations. Ironically, because my company was serving these big organizations. These are the BPs and Nikes and PepsiCo and Microsoft. And like, I would never ever want to work for any of these companies, like as an employee, and they wouldn't have me anyway. So, you know, so what else can I do? Right. I'm like, Hmm, here's a problem. Looks like it needs solving. I'm not looking at it like something's wrong. I'm just curious. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying you guys are stupid. You should do it this way. I never Mm -hmm. approach the problem that way. I'm just looking at it from the case of like an alien who has landed on this planet and is looking at something and is just like, not understanding it or wants to know more about it. Mm -hmm. And things will occur very differently to you if you put yourself into that kind of position, you know, coming in without expectation, making observation. And so that was the beginning of the training company because you like to ask questions. Can we do it differently? Yeah. And also I noticed something because 
I was the president of the American Chamber of Commerce at that time. This was the late 90s. Well, I'll say mid to late 90s. I was on the board and I was voluntold that I was going to run this, this organization. And there was a lot involved in that. But part of it was like meeting with other business leaders and hearing their stories about how they were having such challenges with their Chinese teams. And I would, of course, say, what, what, why are you having those challenges? And they said, well, you know, they don't seem to understand our way of doing things. And I would say, what is that way? And we get in these long discussions and they'd say, listen, I have this open door policy. Anyone can come to see me at any time. And they, they stay away. No Nobody comes. comes into my office. I'm like, that's because it's not an office. It's a trap. We've, <laughs> Chinese have seen this before. It's called the 100 flowers movement. Okay. They know better than to walk into your office with an, a suggestion or a complaint. So, mm -hmm. and I started thinking like, wow, there's a lot of opportunities like this. So I created a communications program and we ran it again and again and again. Um, and it was basically a cross-cultural communications course, but we ran it for both the foreigners and the Chinese. And then that led to other things in training and development, like you know, team development. And, and a lot of that became outdoor stuff, which led to Yangshuo. So let's talk about Yangshuo. Right. What was your vision when you started sort of putting down stakes on the ground? What did you want to build? I'd like to say I had this vision, but I didn't. <laughs> I really just wanted to build it for myself and my friends because I'd been living in Guangzhou and we'd like to get out of the city. So we do this like hash house harriers. We do these outdoor events, you know, just to go out and run around and have fun in the countryside. And some of us were climbers. So we'd go to Yangshuo, which has some of the best outdoor climbing. You're talking about sports climbing here in Southeast Asia. And so I'd been going there with friends on weekends to climb and we realized there really aren't any nice places to stay. There were places in the town of Yangshuo, but there wasn't anything out in the countryside where we were actually climbing. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had like a little lodge out here where we could stay on the river? Cause there was nothing. It was just paddy fields. There were no roads. I thought how wonderfully isolated this place is. There's no tourists obviously. And so I thought, well, maybe the villagers would let us build something here. So we started that discussion. Actually, it was just me. <laughs> my friends were like, this is a very bad idea. <laughs> You're going to lose all your money. <laughs> I said, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so I started talking to this, uh, at that time, it was like this, uh, it's like the production team in charge of that land. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, take it. It's all, it floods all the time. Good luck with that. Have fun. And so they were right. It floods all the time. It was rice terraces. So we built on the top terrace and this kind of prayed and it, it actually worked out. What I thought is I was building it because it was a lot of land. It was seven mu for your listeners. That's like an acre and a half. It's, it's not that big, but it's, it's enough. Right. So as we were building it, you know, the local builder was like, do you want a kitchen? I was like, no, we don't really just something like, you know, a pantry. And then I started thinking like, it would be nice to have a full kitchen here. And we just, it's sort of just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I had a lot of guest rooms and I thought, well, no problem. If like we want to invite more people or have events like that, it would be good for that. And by the time I was finished building it, I said, you know, this would be, this would be really good for teams like to come out here and kind of camp. It was very basic. We didn't have AC, you know, the toilets were very simple. It wasn't really a hotel, okay? It was like a very 
basic Lu Guang, you know, kind of guest house. So mm-hmm. I brought some of these multinational teams out and then we would do these leadership workshops. We'd go out and do orienteering in the countryside. We'd do climbing. We'd build bamboo rafts and cross the river and do games. And they loved it so much. They would call me and say, hey, I want to bring my family from Shanghai. Can we make a reservation? I was like, I don't have any staff, but I will find some. And then I found some. My first two staff, this is a whole other story, but I'll just say it was a woman with a severe disability who came from the fishing village in Xinping, who ended up meeting Bill Clinton and becoming best friends with him. So that's maybe another podcast. But anyway, I hired her and her mom as our housekeeper. She was our receptionist. And that's how we got going. And it became so popular with visitors, with non-corporate visitors, that we eventually ran out of room to hold corporate events. And so we don't do that anymore. It's just a full-time hotel. And then you expanded a few years later. Was that it, 2007? It's nearby, but it's different. The mountain retreat is on the Yulong River, which is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it looks like a Chinese painting. And the village inn is different. My manager at the mountain retreat, she's been there now 18 years. Her name is Little Fish. And Little Fish's family was building something. This happens a lot in China. And since this, it's happened many times to me where... A local family will build something like they're they're building an addition to their house or they're rebuilding their house. The government gives money to families every year in the countryside to like upgrade their house, right? Mm-hmm. And but it's not very much money. So people start building and they're like, "Wow, we just spent all that money and now the house still isn't finished." So she came to me and she said, "You know, we have this nice house in this very nice village. It looks out over a moon hill." which is probably the most famous attraction in Yangshuo. It's this mountain with a a hole in it. And I said, this is a great view of Moon Hill. And like, there was no guest houses. There was not, they still like pumping water in their front yard and washing their vegetables and people going about their daily life. And I said, this is so charming and so beautiful. And it had a beautiful palmetto grove out front. This is a Youzuyuan and a really old palmetto grove, like a hundred years old and probably 24 trees. And I said, this is just idyllic. And she said, do you wanna Mm -hmm. like do something with this? Because we got the money to build this house that we don't really need and we don't know how to finish it. So because it was Little Fish and I love her and her family, so we did this project. And I probably would not have done it were it not for her. And I think people are really the key to all the success in China. You know, it's really renzhi. It's really people-centric. And no matter how good your product or how good your process, if you don't have, if you don't have people that you love, that you're willing to trust and work with long-term, I just don't, it doesn't work. So this has been a success story. It's still in business. Yeah. Let's touch on something that we can all dream about traveling back to China. I heard you are bringing up this new travel concept of a walk and talk. Walk and talk, yeah, yeah. So I had the privilege of joining Kevin Kelly, the writer. He's actually in Silicon Valley, he's not far from you. First of all, he's got a deep interest, long deep interest in China. And he comes to China to speak because big companies like Baidu and Tencent will bring him over to give talks about 
the future of the internet and technology. And so yeah. when he comes to China, he'll spend time to go off on a walk somewhere, you know, because he likes exploring. So we got together and we're like, you know, tromping around Guizhou in the middle of nowhere and we're having a great time and we're just talking the whole time, you know, it's like we're, we're talking about life and ideas and technology and, and heaven, <laughs> lots of things come up. And so I said, this is great. You know, I wish I could do this more often. And he said, well, let's do it. And so he invited a group of people. There was 10 of us. We went to do the Camino de Santiago in Spain. That's the pilgrimage Nice from the border of Portugal that we did that route. And it was a seven day walk. Yeah. It's supported. So there are travel agencies that will take your bags and put them at the next hotel. So that when you, you're walking about 12 to 18 kilometers a day, and every evening we get together and we have what's called a Jeffersonian dinner named after Thomas Jefferson, who used to love to have these single topic, single conversations with his friends. And the topic can be anything and it's chosen by the group. So every morning when you start off, Kevin, who convenes these things, he will say, OK, what's the topic? People volunteer and it has to be a different person every time that recommends the topic. And these are very broad topics. It can be religion. It can be money. It can be art. So during the day, we're not really talking about those things. We're just talking. And you're meeting new people. It's a very interesting kind of cadence. As you walk, faster walkers may go past you, slower walkers. So you kind of fall into natural groups. And then you kind of mix up after lunch or a break. You kind of maybe hook up with another couple of people in your group. And then that's another conversation. And these people are, some of them are quite amazing. Matt Mullenweg from WordPress was one I remember. Craig Mott, who's got this amazing walking business in Japan, leading these long walks in Japan, like across Japan. These are very long walks. Mm. Um, and so the next step was I designed and led one in Yangshuo. We walked from Guilin to Yangshuo, which is a very long walk. It took six days and like some of these walks were 20 kilometers a day. And then I set up the places to stay. I arranged the you know, the transportation and everything. And we just walked and we talked and it gets very emotional sometimes. And it's really a huge growth experience. There was another one in Japan that I missed. And then Kevin asked me to set another one up in China, maybe in Yunnan. So I, I set one up from Lijiang to Shashi on the, one of the old T-horse trails. We tend not to walk on main roads if we can avoid it. So it was all set up. I had like the waypoints, I had support, and then COVID. So I thought, mm -hmm. well, this won't last more than six months. So <laughs> I already had 10 people signed up too. Well, nine actually, because me. And uh, I postponed it six months, and then I postponed it again six months. And then I kind of gave up on it for now. So terrific. Yeah, it's like, it's like an MBA over the course of a week with all the most unconventional thinkers and speakers. Fantastic. I, I love those things. Actually, one of the walks that I'm planning to do when I can get back to do it fully is the Tihos Trail. Yeah. Uh, from Puar all the way up to Lhasa, if I can manage in a couple of years, section by section, just walk it by foot and do my research along the way of its history and culture. And every time I talk about it, there are like five friends sitting around me and say like, can we come and join you? <laughs> I'll go one better, John May. Like 
I will carry your bags. <laughs> I'm really good at carrying things. So I think I know the route you're talking about from Shaxi to, to Lijiang and go through yeah. Mapingguan, all that, and you get to this hot spring on the other end before you hit the road. Right. Loved it. Yunnan is full of these capillaries. They branch out all over Yunnan. Yeah. There'll be endless walking. It's a great dream, and I hope to be part of it. Yeah, let's, let's keep talking. Any parting words that you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I would say there's just so much negative talk in the Western press about China generally, and it's getting worse. And I would say the same is true for Chinese press about the West. So I think it's important to ignore most of that. This is a very nice phrase. It's most negative things are anecdotal and most positive things are statistical. Stuart Brand said that, one of these very big thinkers. And I think it's important not to give up on this relationship in terms of the difference that you as an individual can make, say participating in one of these long walks, the people that you'll meet along the way, the opportunities for human interaction, for growth, for cross-cultural kinds of benefits. And I think it's important to keep that kind of optimistic, positive mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely on the same page. I think that's the wisdom for all of us who uh, have benefited from traveling, both in mind and physically, right? All the reading, encountering different people, the walking, the efforts pay off in a different way to look at the world. And if we stop, then we stop growing. It's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, John. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time.